Last session, we began the book of Hebrews, so I hope you're opening to that uh, great big book right now as we speak. I believe that this book was likely written during a period of time between the death of Peter and the death of Paul, which would have been, I believe, probably in 65, maybe the very earliest part of 66, and the outbreak of the Jewish war in the, I think the summer is going to be our target date of 66. So I've got a very narrow frame for where this book fits. Now, here's the reason why. I believe that there were some Jewish believers in Jesus that saw the persecution happening in Rome, particularly, where a lot of people were dying, and in the Italian peninsula, uh, and even in some of the major cities of the Roman Empire. Uh, and when they saw this persecution, they thought, mm, I'm not so sure I want to get involved in that. And so they began to play around with the idea of just being Jewish again, just being Jewish and protected by the Roman laws, which had protected Judaism for centuries. And so that's the beginning of the window. Uh, the end of the window would, of course, be when things start falling apart in Judea and you actually see a great big blowout of anti-Semitism taking place all over the empire. And uh, so I don't see it being written after that begins. Plus, uh, we know that uh, there are things mentioned in relationship to the uh, temple procedures, and they're treated as they're just normal everyday occurrences. And uh, starting in uh, 66, later 66 and after, that was not the attitude uh, toward the events going on in the temple. All right, so the writer, whom I do not believe is Paul, and today we'll actually see the passage that I point to uh, for that conviction, um, the writer of this letter is trying to challenge all those Jewish believers in Jesus, don't throw Jesus under the bus, don't throw him off to the side, stand up for him because he is the center of our faith. Everything in our faith is about him, and so you cannot abandon the core now, in the first chapter, which we were looking at last session, uh, he appeals to this idea that Jesus is no angel. Now, we use that phrase in a funny way, uh, meaning not a good person. But I'm using it in the sense that Jesus literally is not an angel. And so he makes that very plain. Uh, verse number 13 of chapter number 1 in Hebrews says, To which of the angels has he ever said? And it's clear it's a rhetorical question to be answered in the negative. And then we have this quote 
from uh, Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So that was said prophetically by God the Father to God the Son, the Messiah, but it was never said to an angel. So Jesus is no angel. And then we finish with verse 14, which I want to re-emphasize, and that is the whole purpose of angels. Angels were created to be the servant class of the universe. That was what they were designed to do. They were not made in, in the image and likeness of God. That's humanity. Uh, they were made very powerful. They were made to be spirit beings that could go back and forth uh, between dimensions, but they were not made humans. They were made to serve humans. Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? So Jesus was never an angel, no matter how many people in Jehovah's Witnessism will swear up and down that he used to be Michael the archangel. Most certainly he never was. He is God from eternity past. That's who he is. Uh, So Jesus is not an angel. Angels serve salvation. Jesus is salvation. Now, from that point, we move into chapter number two, where he writes, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. And the visual image that he's putting up here is that if you're in a boat and you're not paying attention to the current and you're not anchored in, pretty soon you won't be where you want to be. You'll be somewhere farther downstream. So the only way that we as believers can stay where we belong is to pay attention. And what do we pay attention to? We pay attention to the message that has been provided to us, the gospel, the inspired word contained in the Jewish scripture and now in the not too much longer to be completed, the New Testament scripture. Verse number two, still on the topic of angels, you'll notice. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Now, the Jewish people, by tradition, believed that angels played a huge role in the bringing of the Scripture into their lives. It starts with the belief that they were involved in giving the law into the hands of Moses, into the hearts and the minds of the people at Mount Sinai. So that's what he's talking about now. He's going to do this Jewish contrast thing. So since the message delivered by angels from God to Moses, you understand, proved to be reliable, 
proved to be something to be paid attention to, and that every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, and there'll be more of that as we move through this letter. Uh, Basically, once God started giving his word to the Jewish people through Moses and then through subsequent leaders and prophets, if you blew that word off, there was a severe penalty for that. So that's his point. Then he asks this question, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so such a great salvation? Now, you have to keep in mind something that I have repeatedly taught you. Jesus' name in Hebrew, Yehoshua, the most formal vocalization of it, Yehoshua is made up of the shortened form of the divine name, which means he who is, and the Hebrew word Hoshea, which means salvation. So Jesus' name literally means he who is salvation. The writer of this letter is Jewish, and he is well aware of that, and everybody that's reading it that's Jewish also knows it. So he is asking them a very pointed question. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, meaning Jesus? How are we going to get away from God's judgment if we ditch Jesus, if we throw Jesus under the bus, if we abandon Jesus, if we quit confessing that name? Verse number continues. It was declared at first by the Lord. So the whole story of the gospel starts with Jesus talking about it. And then listen to this. And it was attested to us by those who heard. So the people, the person writing this, And many of the people that he's writing to never met Jesus. They didn't hear it from him. They heard it from those who heard him. So that's one of my reasons for saying this letter is most certainly not written by the Apostle Paul or any other first-generation believer, that is, people who had direct contact with Jesus. It has to be written by somebody that didn't have that direct contact. That's my reasons. Now, on to verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So, Jesus preaches the gospel Those who were in that first generation of witnesses, they heard that gospel and passed it on. God himself reinforced this gospel by providing all the signs and the wonders and then the apostolic miracles and then the apostolic gifts of the Holy Spirit, which the Apostle Paul said was distributed 
according to the Spirit's design. He said that in his letters. So this is another one of the places that I say, whoever is writing this is clearly quite familiar with the either the teaching of or the writing of, or perhaps both, of the Apostle Paul. And that is why I think it has such a Pauline feel to it. But I refuse to allow for the Apostle Paul to actually be the author, because I do not see him writing that phrase uh, there at uh, the end of verse number three, because he made a big deal out of the fact that he did not get his gospel information from anyone other than Jesus himself. Verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So angels were not gifted with the first world created in the beginning, nor is the new heavens and new earth intended as a gift to them either. Both cases were directed toward humanity, toward those made in the image and likeness of God. The angels were and are the servant class in those worlds. Verse number six, it has been testified somewhere. Now, it's interesting that he does not always give a book as to where he's citing from. It turns out that he's actually citing from Psalm number eight, and you can go and check this out for yourself. Uh, and uh, I, I want to remind you that in uh, history, it wasn't until, I think, the medieval period that we actually started getting things like uh, chapters and verses inserted to help us cite things to people uh, more easily. And so every once in a while, I, I feel a little bit more comfortable with my own, um, shall we say, limited abilities of recalling exactly where it was that I read something that I want to quote from. Because that's certainly the case with the Hebrew writer here. It has been testified somewhere, quote, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? Now that's very poetic there. It's very Jewish. Uh, in Jewish poetry, you often say something and then repeat it with synonyms. So man and son of man mean the exact same thing. Care, be mindful, mean exactly the same thing in this poetry. Uh, but there is a play on these words for the sake of the argument. And that is, we know that Jesus takes on a title of son of man. And prophetically, we capitalize those words, S and M, Son of Man, meaning the Messiah, meaning Jesus. So while this psalm, Psalm 8, was originally a poem thinking about how God made creation 
for humanity, it ends up being a prophetic poem about Jesus himself. So let's read from the beginning of the poem again. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, meaning not as strong as them physically, not as gifted in the sense of being able to travel between dimensions like the original angels were. Uh, So humanity is not as strong as the angelic world. That's just the reality of it. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So even though God did not originally make humanity as strong as the angelic world, he did give him the glory and honor of being made in his image and likeness, male and female. And he also intended for man to receive creation, earth and heaven, as a gift to be used. Uh, Even before the fall came into existence, you'll remember in the book of Genesis, God put all of the created animals under the control of Adam and Eve. And if they had not sinned, they would have remained in that control. Uh, When they did sin, though, they lost that that relationship with God, and therefore a special relationship with his creation. And so this psalm ends up being more about the ultimate human being, the Messiah, Jesus. Uh, Verse 8 continues. We're outside of the quote from Psalm 8 now. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him... He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So, the reality is now, humanity is not in control of this world's animal population. Not in any way, shape, or form. And humanity is not in control of the world itself. Uh, It is often outside of his control. But it is at this point that the writer of Hebrews starts doing his double meaning thing. He starts seeing the prophetic uh, implications of this psalm. Where Jesus, even though when he resurrected and he stood on that mountain in Galilee and he talked to his apostles and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So even though Jesus has had the authority given to him, he is not exercising it all yet. Verse number 9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Now this is a Philippians chapter 2 proposition. Again, uh, this is Pauline territory here, uh, that Jesus, even though he was in very form God and did not see equality with God, something he needed to cling to, to grab at, because he actually 
owned it already, uh, he nevertheless emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. And then he took on the form of humanity from conception onward. And being found in that form, a little lower than the angels, according to Psalm 8, he was obedient to God the Father in his mission to save those that would call upon the name. And being found in that obedient state, he even died on the cross. And because of that, he's given this grand accolades and and this special name that is above all other names so that at his name, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians 2. So here is Hebrews chapter 2. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That's Jesus' incarnation, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So he has been crowned with all these accolades, all this glory and honor, because he was obedient even unto death, death on the cross. But why did he do that? He did it to save us, to fulfill his name mission, he who is salvation. So he died so that we might be able to live. And so the writer of Hebrews says, it's by the grace of God that he, Jesus, tasted death for everyone, that is, for all human beings that would avail themselves of that, not angels. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, A little Paul mixed with John there, isn't it? In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, Jesus was already perfect morally. Uh, The word perfect here might be better thought of in our minds of completed, meaning he completed his mission. So, He was completed by what he did, suffering as our atoning sacrifice. Uh, He was the Lamb of God, slain for our sin, taking away our sin. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies, which is a fancy word for saying make like God, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, so that's Christians, believers, all have one source. Uh, They are all one together. And so that is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and then there's a quote here. Uh, This time the quote comes from Psalm 22, verse 22. And Psalm 22, if you're not aware, and you should be, it is a prophetic psalm that talks about the crucifixion of Jesus. So in that psalm, there is also the um, prophetic after the crucifixion story uh, about how people are saved. So the quote is, I will tell of your name 
that is the name of God, he who is, to my brothers, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So Jesus showed God to us, showed to us God the Father, preached to us, praised to us, sang to us about God the Father by his death and resurrection. Verse 13, and again, uh, this quote uh, comes from, um, I think it's Psalm 18, quote, I will put my trust in him, meaning Jesus put his trust in God the Father and went to the cross on our behalf. And then again, the writer uh, throws another quote out there. This time it's from Isaiah 8.18, and uh, it's borrowing the wording because Isaiah basically is talking about all his kids that he has that God had him name as a means of teaching. And so, again, behold, I and the children God has given me, end quote. So Jesus is the one that is pictured as saying this, that I've got all these kids, these believers that God the Father has given to me, and I'm going to save them by what I've done, uh, and they are special to me. And so these are all human beings. That's the point. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, the, the power of death in this sense is uh, the devil accuses us of having sinned and therefore coming under God's judgment of separation for eternity from his presence. The second death is the much more significant death. Uh, so Jesus came to do away with Satan's power. This is, again, very Pauline that Jesus, by dying, took Satan's primary weapon away from him, the fear of death. Verse 15, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus broke that power base by his death and his resurrection. Now comes verse 16, which is where we've been driving the whole time. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So Jesus did not come to save angels. Angels are not made in the image and likeness of God, and therefore they are not to be redeemed. It's humans that Jesus came to redeem. And so that is the focal point that we will have to stop on today, and we'll get back into it the next time we're into God's holy word.